0: section 25 of the great events volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the great events by famous historians volume one edited by charles f horn rossiter johnson and john rudd section 25 solon's early greek legislation B.C. five hundred ninety four by George Grote, part four. To distinguish this Solonian constitution from the democracy which followed it is essential to a due comprehension of the progress of the Greek mind and especially of Athenian affairs. That democracy was achieved by gradual steps, Demosthenes and Aeschines lived under it as a system consummated and in full activity, when the stages of its previous growth were no longer matter of exact memory, and the diecasts then assembled in judgment were pleased to hear their constitution associated with the names either of Solon or of Theseus. Their inquisitive contemporary Aristotle was not thus misled, but even commonplace Athenians of the century preceding would have escaped the same delusion. For during the whole course of the democratical movement, from the Persian invasion down to the Peloponnesian war, and especially during the changes proposed by Pericles and Ephialtes, there was always a strenuous party of resistance, who would not suffer the people to forget that they had already forsaken, and were on the point of forsaking still more, the orbit marked out by Solon the illustrious pericles underwent innumerable attacks both from the orators in the assembly and from the comic writers in the theatre and among these sarcasms on the political tendencies of the day we are probably to number the complaint breathed by the poet cratinus of the desuetude into which both solon and draco had fallen i swear said he in a fragment of one of his comedies by Solon and Draco, whose wooden tablets of laws are now employed by people to roast their barley. The laws of Solon respecting penal offences, respecting inheritance and adoption, respecting the private relations generally, etc., remained for the most part in force. His quadripartite census also continued, at least for financial purposes, Until the archonship of Naucinicus in b. c. three hundred seventy seven, so that Cicero and others might be warranted in affirming that his laws still prevailed at Athens. But his political and judicial arrangements had undergone a revolution not less complete and memorable than the character and spirit of the Athenian people generally. The choice by way of lot of archons and other magistrates, and the distribution by lot of the general body of dicasts or jurors into panels for judicial business may be decidedly considered as not belonging to solon but adopted after the revolution of clisthenes probably the choice of senators by lot also the lot was a symptom of pronounced democratical spirit such as we must not seek in the solonian institutions It is not easy to make out distinctly what was the political position of the ancient gentes and fratries as Solon left them. The four tribes consisted altogether of gentes and fratries, insomuch that no one could be included in any one of the tribes who was not also a member of some genes or fratry. Now the new pro or pre-considering senate consisted of four hundred members one hundred from each of the tribes. Persons not included in any gents or fratry could therefore have had no access to it. The conditions of eligibility were similar, according to ancient custom, for the nine archons, of course also for the senate of Areopagus, so that there remained only the public assembly, in which an Athenian not a member of these tribes could take part yet he was a citizen since he could give his vote for archons and senators and could take part in the annual decision of their accountability besides being entitled to claim redress for wrong from the archons in his own person while the alien could only do so through the intervention of an avouching citizen or prostates it seems therefore that all persons not included in the four tribes whatever their grade of fortune might be were on the same level in respect to political privilege as the fourth and poorest class of the Solonian census. It has already been remarked that even before the time of Solon, the number of Athenians not included in the gentes or Fratries, was probably considerable. It tended to become greater and greater, since these bodies were close and inexpensive, while the policy of the new lawgiver tended to invite industrious settlers from other parts of Greece and Athens. Such great and increasing inequality of political privilege helps to explain the weakness of the government in repelling the aggressions of Pisistratus and exhibits the importance of the revolution afterward wrought by Clisthenes when he abolished, for all political purposes, the four old tribes and created ten new comprehensive tribes in place of them. In regard to the regulations of the Senate and the assembly of the people, as constituted by Solon, we are altogether without information. Nor is it safe to transfer to the Solonian constitution the information, comparatively ample, which we possess respecting these bodies under the later democracy. The laws of Solon were inscribed on wooden rollers and triangular tablets. In the species of writing called boistrophedon, lines alternating first from left to right and then from right to left, like the course of the Ploughman, and preserved first in the Acropolis, subsequently in the Prytaneum, On the tablets called kirbis were chiefly commemorated the laws respecting sacred rites and sacrifices. On the pillars or rollers, of which there were at least sixteen, were placed the regulations respecting matters profane. So small are the fragments which have come down to us, and so much has been ascribed to Solon by the orators, which belongs really to the subsequent times, that it is hardly possible to form any critical judgment respecting the legislation as a whole, or to discover, by what general principles or purposes he was guided. He left unchanged all the previous laws and practices respecting the crime of homicide, connected as they were intimately with the religious feelings of the people. The laws of Draco on this subject therefore remained, but on other subjects, according to Plutarch, they were altogether abrogated. There is, however, room for supposing that the repeal cannot have been so sweeping as this biographer represents. The Solonian laws seems to have borne, more or less upon all, the great departments of human interest and duty. We find regulations political and religious, public and private, civil and criminal, commercial, agricultural, sumptuary and disciplinarian. Solon provides punishment for crimes, restricts the profession and status of the citizen, prescribes detailed rules for marriage as well as for burial, For the common use of springs and wells and for the mutual interest of conterminous farmers in planting or hedging their properties as far as we can judge from the imperfect manner in which his laws come before us there does not seem to have been any attempt at a systematic order or classification some of them are mere general and vague directions while others again run into the extreme of specialty by far the most important of all was the amendment of the law of debtor and creditor which has already been adverted to and the abolition of the power of fathers and brothers to sell their daughters and sisters into slavery the prohibition of all contracts on the security of the body was itself sufficient to produce a vast improvement in the character and condition of the poorer population a result which seems to have been so sensibly obtained from the legislation of Solon, that Boeck and some other eminent authors suppose him to have abolished villainage and conferred upon the poor tenants a property in their lands, annulling the seigneurial rights of the landlord. But this opinion rests upon no positive evidence, nor are we warranted in ascribing to him any stronger measure in reference to the land than the annulment of the previous mortgages." The first pillar of his laws contained a regulation respecting exportable produce. He forbade the exportation of all produce of the Attic soil except olive oil alone. And the sanction employed to enforce observance of this law deserves notice as an illustration of the ideas of the time. The archon was bound, on pain of forfeiting one hundred drachmas, to pronounce solemn curses against every offender we are probably to take this prohibition in conjunction with other objects said to have been contemplated by solon especially the encouragement of artisans and manufacturers at athens observing we are told that many new immigrants were just then flocking into attica to seek an establishment in consequence of its greater security he was anxious to turn them rather to manufacturing industry than to the cultivation of a soil naturally poor. He forbade the granting of citizenship to any immigrants, except to such as had quitted irrevocably their former abodes, and come to Athens for the purpose of carrying on some industrial profession. And in order to prevent idleness, he directed, the Senate of Areopagus, to keep watch over the lives of the citizens generally, and punish every one who had no course of regular labor to support him if a father had not taught his son some art or profession solon relieved the son from all obligation to maintain him in his old age and it was to encourage the multiplication of these artisans that he insured or sought to insure to the residents in attica the exclusive right of buying and consuming all its landed produce except olive oil, which was raised in abundance, more than sufficient for their wants. It was his wish that the trade with foreigners should be carried on by exporting the produce of artisan labor instead of the produce of land. This commercial prohibition is founded on principles substantially similar to those which were acted upon in the early history of England, with reference both to corn and to wool, and in other European countries also. in so far as it was at all operative, it tended to lessen the total quantity of produce raised upon the soil of Attica, and thus to keep the price of it from rising. But the law of Solon must have been altogether inoperative, in reference to the great articles of human subsistence. For Attica imported, both largely and constantly, grain and salt provisions. Probably also wool and flax for the spinning and weaving of the women, and certainly timber for building. Whether the law was ever enforced with reference to figs and honey may well be doubted. At least these productions of Attica were in aftertimes trafficked, in and generally consumed throughout Greece. Probably also in the time of Solon the silver mines of Lorium had hardly begun to be worked. These afterward became highly productive, and furnished to Athens a commodity for foreign payments no less convenient than lucrative. It is interesting to notice the anxiety, both of Solon and of Draco, to enforce among their fellow citizens industrious and self-maintaining habits, and we shall find the same sentiment proclaimed by Pericles at the time when Athenian power was at its maximum. Nor ought we to pass over this early manifestation in Attica of an opinion equitable and tolerant towards sedentary industry, which in most other parts of Greece was regarded as comparatively dishonorable. The general tone of Grecian sentiment recognized no occupations as perfectly worthy of a free citizen, except arms, agriculture, and athletic and musical exercises and the proceedings of the Spartans, who kept aloof even from agriculture and left it to their helots, were admired, though they could not be copied, throughout most of the Hellenic world. Even minds like Plato, Aristotle, and Xenophon concurred to a considerable extent in this feeling, which they justified on the ground that the sedentary life and unceasing housework of the artisan were inconsistent with military aptitude. The town occupations are usually described by a word which carries with it contemptuous ideas, and though recognized as indispensable to the existence of the city, are held suitable only for an inferior and semi-privileged order of citizens. This, the received sentiment among Greeks as well as foreigners, found a strong and growing opposition at athens as i have already said corroborated also by a similar feeling at corinth the trade of corinth as well as of chalcis in oibia was extensive at a time when that of athens had scarce any existence but while the despotism of periander can hardly have failed to operate as a discouragement to industry at corinth The contemporaneous legislation of Solon provided for traders and artisans a new home at Athens, giving the first encouragement to that numerous town population, both in the city and in the Pyrios, which we find actually residing there in the succeeding century. The multiplication of such town residents, both citizens and metics, i.e. resident persons, not citizens but enjoying an assured position and civil rights, was a capital fact in the onward march of Athens, since it determined not merely the extension of her trade, but also the preeminence of her naval forces, and thus, as a further consequence, lent extraordinary vigour to their democratical government it seems moreover to have been a departure from the primitive temper of Atticism, which tended both to cantonal residence and ruler occupation we have therefore the greater interest in noting the first mention of it as a consequence of the solonian legislation to solon is first owing the admission of a power of testamentary bequest at athens in all cases in which a man had no legitimate children According to the pre-existing custom, we may rather presume that if a deceased person left neither children nor blood relations, his property descended, as at Rome, to his genes and fratry. Throughout most rude states of society, the power of willing is unknown, as among the ancient Germans, among the Romans prior to the Twelve Tables, in the old laws of the Hindus, etc., Society limits a man's interest or power of enjoyment to his life, and considers his relatives as having joint reversionary claims to his property, which take effect in certain determinate proportions after his death. Such a law was the more likely to prevail at Athens, since the perpetuity of the family's sacred rights, in which the children and near relatives partook of right was considered by the Athenians as a matter of public as well as of private concern. Solon gave permission to every man, dying without children, to bequeath his property by will as he should think fit, and the testament was maintained unless it could be shown to have been procured by some compulsion or improper seduction. Speaking generally, this continued to be the law throughout the historical times of Athens. Sons, wherever there were sons, succeeded to the property of their father in equal shares, with the obligation of giving out their sisters in marriage, along with a certain dowry. If there were no sons, then the daughters succeeded, though the father might by will, within certain limits, determine the person to whom they should be married, with their rights of succession attached to them, Or might with the consent of his daughters make by will certain other arrangements about his property a person who had no children or direct lineal descendants might bequeath his property at pleasure if he died without a will first his father then his brother or brother's children next his sister or sister's children succeeded if none such existed then the cousins by the father's side next the cousins by the mother's side, the male line of descent having preference over the female. Such was the principle of the Solonian laws of succession, though the particulars are in several ways obscure and doubtful. Solon, it appears, was the first, who gave power of superseding, by testament, the rights of agnates and gentiles to succession, a proceeding in consonance with his plan of encouraging both industrious occupation and the consequent multiplication of individual acquisitions. It has been already mentioned that Solon forbade the sale of daughters or sisters into slavery by fathers or brothers, a prohibition which shows how much females had before been looked upon as articles of property. And it would seem that before his time, The violation of a free woman must have been punished at the discretion of the magistrates, for we are told that he was the first who enacted a penalty of one hundred drachmas against the offender and twenty drachmas against the seducer of a free woman. Moreover, it is said that he forbade a bride, when given in marriage, to carry with her any personal ornaments and appurtenances, except, to the extent of three robes, and certain matters of furniture not very valuable. Solon further imposed upon women several restraints in regard to proceeding at the obsequies of deceased relatives. He forbade profuse demonstrations of sorrow, singing of composed dirges, and costly sacrifices and contributions. He limited strictly the quantity of meat and drink admissible for the funeral banquet, and prohibited nocturnal exit except in a car and with a light. It appears that both in Greece and Rome the feelings of duty and affection on the part of surviving relatives prompted them to ruinous expense in a funeral as well as to unmeasured effusions both of grief and conviviality, and the general necessity experienced for legal restriction is attested by the remark of Plutarch that similar prohibitions to those enacted by solon were likewise in force at his native town of caronia other penal enactments of solon are yet to be mentioned he forbade absolutely evil speaking with respect to the dead he forbade it likewise with respect to the living either in a temple or before judges or archons or at any public festival on pain of a forfeit of three drachmas to the person aggrieved and two more to the public treasury how mild the general character of his punishments was may be judged by this law against foul language not less than by the law before mentioned against rape both the one and the other of these offences were much more severely dealt with under the subsequent law of democratical athens the peremptory edict against speaking ill of a deceased person though doubtless springing in a great degree from disinterested repugnance, is traceable also in part to that fear of the wrath of the departed which strongly possessed the early Greek mind. End of section twenty-five.